Thank you, worship team. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, if you're newer to the Bible, chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Very important message today. How to get along when we disagree. Not that that ever happens here, but I think it did once back in 1984, but... We're currently in a series in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, Wise Words to a Hurting Church. And this morning, we come to a section about how to get along when Christians disagree. Not necessarily over clear moral issues of black and white. I'm not talking about disagreeing about lying or stealing or sexual sin or adultery or gluttony or, or racism or abortion. Those are, those are black and white issues, right and wrong. I'm talking about when we disagree over lifestyle issues, preference issues, gray issues sometimes they're called, or they used to be called matters of Christian liberty. And the issue is, what do you do when you don't always connect and, and agree on these things? Paul calls them disputable matters in Romans chapter 14. Previous generations in American Protestantism some of these would have included uh, roller skating. Oh, yeah. But Becky's grandmother, that was a big thing in their youth group. Is it okay to go and hold hands with the opposite sex and skate in dimly lit rooms to secular music? That was, could be viewed as scandalous. Uh, women or girls wearing pants versus dresses to church was a big thing. Makeup. Every generation has its list of no-nos. And the issue is, the question is, how do Christians get along when it comes to these areas? You fast forward to today, and that's where it gets a little more dicey, because not only do some Christians not agree that there's even gray areas, then it becomes also, well, what goes in that column versus the clear moral issue? But, lest I, let me wade in where Angels fear to tread. Let me list just some of the more common areas of preference today. Lifestyle choices, gray issues, disputable matters that would be common in evangelical Bible churches. I'll just say in American culture. Things like birth control. A Christian couple use birth control. Uh, the whole dietary thing. Vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, carnivore. Now, I'm a carnivore. I'm over on that side of the aisle, but I have to, you know, we get along with, we have to get along with the vegans and the vegetarians and all the rest. In fact, Paul's going to mention vegetarians today in, in uh, Romans. Public schooling versus homeschooling causes some big disputes. Music style in a worship service, drums, guitars, congas, you know, some people view that as uh, scandalous. Tat tattoos or using alcohol or using tobacco in any form, political views on immigration or climate change, owning a gun, I'll throw out vaccinations. That's been one that's been around for a long time. Some strong disagreement in the Christian community. And there's not a verse on it, obviously. There's no Bible verse that says, thou shalt get vaccinated, or thou shalt not get vaccinated. So that is you know, probably one of the ones that is common today. Um, getting body piercing. Or here's a biggie. Bears versus the Packers. 
you just go, yeah, the, yeah, the lions, that's, that's the right answer. So that one's a black and white issue. That's somehow they got on my list. 1 Corinthians 8, also we're going to look at part of 1 Corinthians 10, and also we're going to dip into Romans 14 where Paul also addresses this. We're going to see two things this morning, the problem and then the counsel or the solution. And then we will go to the Lord's table and we will end today as Pastor Doug leads us in the reciting of the Apostles' Creed. First of all, the problem. Starting in chapter 7, we noted last week Paul has now changed his strategy for six chapters. He hammered away on very blatant sins in this church. He'd helped start this church less than five years earlier when he, from when the time he wrote this letter. This was his baby. Then he moved on after a year and a half to what is modern-day western Turkey in Ephesus. And soon reports came this church was a train wreck. It was falling apart. It was riddled with divisions and disputes and infighting. It was a mess. And so for six chapters, Paul hammered away on all sorts of different sins. Now in chapter 7, he says, now for the matters you wrote about. So he changes his strategy. He's now answering questions. He's addressing issues. In chapter 8, he comes to their second question. The first one in chapter 7 was about marriage. Better to marry, not to marry. Now in chapter 8, he moves on, and he's talking about another disputable issue. Food sacrifice to idols. Now this is, again... Not an issue for us today, but over the years, these things change, obviously, from culture to culture, from church to church. For this church, this was a biggie. And let me read the first part of verse 8, and then I'll just give you the brief background. Some of you know this, but some of you don't. So now, so now we're coming to the second issue about food sacrifice to idols. So their next question went something like this. Can a true Christian... Eat meat sold in the marketplace that had been used in a pagan sacrifice in a pagan temple, which was often discounted then in the marketplace versus the other kinds of meat. There are typically two kinds of meat available. You had meat and then you had meat sacrificed idols. That was often put at a discount rate. A lot of the Christians said, you know, what's an idol? I'll go for the cheaper stuff. Those that had come out of a background, perhaps, of pagan worship saw that and said, how could you ever eat something that had been dedicated to a demon or a pagan god? That's unthinkable. And it was dividing this church. You could see how that could cause a lot of intense feelings. Many of the Christians, some of those perhaps coming from a Jewish background or just different background, realized that... You really can't contaminate meat spiritually, and so they saved money and bought the temple meat. But again, this really bugs some of the others and deeply disturbed them and perhaps even caused them to stumble spiritually. And so in their mind, that was blasphemous. That was unbiblical compromise. And so the question comes to Paul, is this a clear moral issue? Is this a preference issue? Give us some guidance, oh Paul. So this is a tricky one. True story. At our first interview ever for the pastoring, uh, way back, I was ripe old age of 26, right out of seminary, we went to a small church in Minnesota to interview. We, didn't, we did not end up going to this church. We actually ended up, through our superintendent's advice, turning it down. But we were sitting there, very first time we'd ever been interviewed for the pastorate. And at one point, there was a potluck dinner. And I remember a young man sitting me down and saying, off to the side, in between the interview and 
potluck and then rest of the interview. He said, I, I want to ask you some questions. I said, okay. And then he prefaced it this way. He said, I don't want any answer except yes or no. And I thought, uh-oh. So then he had his, he, you know, he pulls out his list of no-nos and off he goes. He, you know, it was just the two of us sitting there, but he said, Is it, can a Christian ever use any form of tobacco? And I said, well, I mean, no, yes or no? How about alcohol? How about tattoos? How about playing cards? How about going to the cinema? I mean, he went down his list. And every time I said, well, it, 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 yes or no? I mean, it was very intense. It wasn't the most polite young chap. And I finally said, I'm not playing your game. All you're doing is playing gotcha. I don't do gotcha. And I said, I'm not doing this. I said, you're just trying to pin me to the wall. And I, that's, that's inappropriate. And I got up and walked away. I mean, I wasn't going to do that. And we didn't end up going there. It was other reasons, but that was probably one of them. So, again, the issue, can you eat meat sacrificed idols, preference areas, lifestyle choices, disputable matters, what do you do? So Paul rolls up his sleeve and he gives counsel. We find the counsel in chapter 8, in chapter 10, and Romans 14. This is in no particular order. I'm just going to go through them. You can watch this again online. You can listen to it online in a podcast. But I would encourage you to write these down, look at these, talk about them with your family, especially your kids, if you have kids and grandkids. The sooner we get this, the better it is in the Christian life and the healthier it is for God's church. So here's his counsel. Number one, love is to govern all decisions on preference issues. And he says that in verses 1 to 3, chapter 8. Whatever decided, whatever side of an issue you're on, Love, which is a verb in the Greek, it's an action. Love is to be the bottom line, how we treat others. Now about food sacrifice to idols. Now, and Paul even gives his opinion, really, as he goes along here. He's very clear. He doesn't view it as a black and white issue. He views this as an issue of Christian liberty. But he says, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Verse 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So whatever's decided on any of these issues, we are to treat each other with respect and with grace. Secondly, realize that preference issues do exist and true Christians will disagree. Will disagree. Now for some, that's even a surprise. Some people don't even believe that there are gray areas or disputable matters. Paul is very clear there are, and at times Christians will disagree, and that's okay. Conflict is not intrinsically bad. It can actually be helpful in a marriage and an organization if it's handled well. That's the key. Look at verses 4 to 8. And again, Paul's very clear what his personal opinion is. He has no problem eating meat sacrificed to an idol, but he understands why some would. And so he talks, verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know an idol's nothing at all in the world. That's his opinion. That, that meat is neither here nor there. And that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, there's Paul's spiritual gift of sarcasm again, whether in heaven or on earth, is indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there's but one God, the Father, 
from whom all things come and from whom we live. There is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things come and came and through whom we live. Verses 7 and 8. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are so accustomed to idols. He's talking about perhaps newer believers or even people that have come into the worship service who aren't yet believers. Some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, meat sacrificed to an idol, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god or a demon. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. So translation, this is a preference issue. This is a lifestyle issue. Understand those exist. It's one of those disputable matters. And the Apostle Paul says, we know this. However, people will disagree for valid reasons. But he wants them to at least understand preference issues do exist. Some Christians really struggle with even that very concept. It's hard for them to accept. Let me give you another story. A number of years ago, when we finally did take our first church in rural Minnesota, we were out doing pastoral visitation one day, and we stopped by a dear uh, widow's house, and her son happened to be visiting from the military, and he was a grouchy individual, and uh, just personally, he happened to just be a grouchy guy, and so as we sat down to visit with his mother, he just took over the pastoral visit. And she just kind of faded into her seat, and he just he starts grilling me a little bit like this previous guy. He said, uh, he said I, I have some questions, and I, I want to I know some things. He goes, I want to know what you preach against. I said, okay. Do you preach against television? That's just the way he asked it. I said, well, it depends. On, do you preach against television? I said, <laughs> Depends on how it's showing. Do you preach against alcohol? Do you preach against playing cards? Do you preach against going to an R-rated movie? Do you preach against, uh, you know, down the list, Christian rock, makeup? That was one of his ones, too. Do you preach against makeup? I'm like, well, there's my wife. You can look. She has makeup on, so that's obviously a big no. <laughs> but then he gets up. Wasn't done. He gets up, and he says, I'll be right back. To which I should have said to his mom, see you later, and <laughs> exited. But I didn't. I sat there. He goes in, the, goes in another room, comes out with an armful of King James-only literature, plops it down, and starts, do you preach out of the King James Bible? I said, well, I grew up on it. I respect Do you preach out of it? I said, no. I use the NIV, the New American, New International Version. Well, how come? And, and for a half hour, just started laying into me about other translations, Problem is, he knew nothing about Greek, nothing about Hebrew, nothing about Aramaic, nothing about translation or linguistics, so it was a little bit of a difficult conversation to try to explain to somebody who didn't get any of this stuff that he didn't understand what in the world he was talking about. But that didn't matter because he was undeterred and full of vim and vigor. And finally, we just said, look, I'm, I'm not going to play this game. This goes on all the time. <laughs> Dr. Cal Hebert sitting over here has been a pastor for years, veteran. He's smiling. He knows... This kind, of, this kind of gotcha thing goes on with Christian leaders and pastors all the time. Paul just wants to make sure you cl- are clear. And the sooner a, a church family is clear in this, the better. There are disputable areas. There are areas of preference. There are gray areas. That's 
just wisdom to admit that, and Christians will disagree at times. That's just wisdom. Thirdly, make a biblically informed decision when you decide. Go to Romans 14. Here Paul is very clear about this. And it's, by the way, it is a good thing to decide. We shouldn't you know, run around with no opinions in these areas. I have strong opinions on all these areas. But still, we need to recognize there's a column called black and white moral issues and black and white theological issues, and then areas of preference, disputable matters, lifestyle choices. And even though these are important, they don't cross over to the other list, and we need to know the difference, and we need to make informed decisions when it comes to the lifestyle choices. We shouldn't just flip a coin and say, whatever. We should have a biblically informed reason. It, it, it might have to do with our past and our experiences and, and our own personal weaknesses and inclinations, but we should have a biblically informed and a wise reason, a good reason for what we've decided. Paul says that. Romans 14, 1 to 5. And here he's going to mention two disputable issues in that church, vegetarianism and Jewish ceremonial days. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. There's the category. I was preaching on this in one of our churches years ago, I, and I titled, in fact, I was preaching out of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I, called the t I entitled the message, What About Those Gray Areas? For some reason, an older gentleman in the church, who I had very good rapport with, took me aside. He thought I was preaching about uh, hair color, for whatever, uh, somehow that it came up, <laughs> and something about older age, and I said, no, 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 this is a sermon about, you know, Christian liberty and, the, and disputable matter. Oh, those areas don't exist. I said, yeah, they do. But he was 80, and I was 28, and so I didn't push it too hard, but I then preached the sermon, which he didn't agree with, but that's okay. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything. Another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Okay, so the vegetarianism and the whole debate existed back then. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who doesn't. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you? <laughs> who am I to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servant, stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. And then in verse 5, he brings up Jewish holy days. Since they're not under the Mosaic law, they didn't have to keep Passover or Yom Kippur or the Feast of the Tabernacles. Some did, some didn't. Good reasons on both sides of the aisle. One person, verse 5, considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each one of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. There's the phrase. Whatever your, whatever your decision on Jewish festival days or on, uh, on vegetarianism or whatever, make sure you're fully convinced in your own mind. That's an important one. Look at verses 22 and 23. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And that means you don't sin against your conscience. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat. If you really struggle with something and you feel like because of your past and your background that that's, that's probably an area you shouldn't be involved in 
and then you go against that anyways, or you indulge in it anyways, you're sinning against your conscience. That's Paul's point. Because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. All right, next one. D, always be ready to yield to freedom if necessary. This is an important one. Back to 1 Corinthians 8. We all have freedoms, and we need to make sure that we yield them if necessary. Verses 8, I mean verses 9 to 13. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, see their, their, their chant in this church was, well, what about my rights? <laughs> that was their attitude. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And so this weak, meaning either a newer Christian or maybe someone that's not quite yet crossed the line of saving faith and coming out of a pagan background, they may see this and be destroyed by your knowledge. It may, they may totally throw them for a loop. How can a mature Christian do this? And it could completely throw them uh, off kilter. Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes a brother or sister to fall into sin, I won't eat the meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Go over to chapter 10 for a minute, verses 23 and 24. Chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. Again, their pep cry in this church was, my rights. Paul says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. That's Paul's principle. Their principle was my rights. Paul says, get over your rights. Eat anything sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Drop down to verse 32. Do not cause someone to, anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks, that even includes unbelievers, or the church of God, or believers. Even as I try to please everyone in the way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So the principle even extends to unbelievers. For example, in the missions world, if you're talking to those that work with Muslims, missionaries to Muslims, Muslims, by conviction, at least if they're faithful Muslims, do not eat pork and do not drink alcohol. Now, a lot of Muslims do eat pork and do drink alcohol, but they're not supposed to. And so... As Beck and I have talked to many missionaries in Muslim contexts, whatever their personal convictions, they voluntarily give up pork and alcohol. They make sure it's never been served on the dishes in their home so that if they have a Muslim family in and the Muslim family says, are your dishes halal? Are they kosher, in other words? The missionaries can honestly say, yes, no pork, no alcohol has ever been served in our home or on these dishes. Otherwise, that'd be a huge stumbling block to a Muslim. So that, there, there's a modern day example of how that might work. Next one, recognize the difference between causing someone to stumble and offending them. Now Paul doesn't bring this up, I'm bringing this up out of pastoral experience because, here's why, a lot of people take what I just said about not causing someone to stumble 
And they view that as, so if anybody disagrees with you on anything, don't do that thing. And that's not what Paul's saying. There is a difference between causing a weaker brother to stumble, or a newer Christian, or someone who's not yet perhaps a Christian. There's a difference between doing that and just doing something that some old sour-faced curmudgeon saint doesn't approve of. Okay, there's, there's a difference. Those who get older sometimes, as we age, we get hardening of the categories, and we just... Friends, it's just, just be honest, there's some grouchy Christians or professing Christians in every church that are legalistic, grumpy referees looking to throw penalty flags on people. Right? That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about being careful with the tender conscience of a newer believer or with your witness with an unbeliever. For example, the, you know, the missionary to Muslims who gives up pork and alcohol. There's times to give things up. There's times to yield their rights for valid, evangelistic, God-glorifying reasons. There's other times, if an older, curmudgeon, grouchy, sour-faced, legalistic saint just doesn't like it, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying you have to do something that everybody approves of. He's talking about two very different things. So there's a difference between causing someone to stumble, a weaker brother, and just offending somebody. Next, realize that all true Christians will give an account to God. Romans 14, 10 through 12. Whatever you decide, whatever I decide on disputable matters, we should make a biblically informed, wise decision and know that as a believer, there is a judgment coming only for believers. The issue is not heaven or hell. It is on how I live the Christian life. Paul's already talked about this. We've already talked about this earlier in 1 Corinthians, verses 10 to 12 says, whatever you decide on this, someday you will, if you know Christ, answer to Christ for how you operated in this realm. So be careful. Don't just fling your rights and claim your rights and just waltz through life and through church life. Be careful. Be wise. You will stand before Christ and give an account. Verses 10 to 12. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Again, he's talking about disputable matters. Why do you treat them with contempt? We will all, all means true born-again Christians, will stand before God's judgment seat. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us, again, this is true, true believers, will give an account of ourselves to God. To God. So the issue here is not whether you're saved or not. This is about rewards and lack of rewards for believers in the next life. Lastly, back to 1 Corinthians 10. In all of this, recognize the bottom line motive should be God's reputation. And I say that because of 10, chapter 10, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, here, I mean, this is like his conclusion of the matter. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do on all these disputable things. Do it for the glory of God. What does that mean? That means do it to enhance His reputation, not to detract from His reputation. And so whatever you decide on these disputable matters, and and the list is ever-changing and ever-evolving, do it for God's reputation. All right, what are, what are our summons this morning? 
Three of them. Here they are. These are important. Number one, true Christians, if you are here this morning and you know Christ, you have, and if you've been born again and His Holy Spirit is alive in you, true Christians are called to lives of holiness first and foremost. Not just to make a decision in a disputable matter that they like. We're called to go deeper and make sure that our lives are lives of holiness and of sound doctrine. True Christians are called to kill sin in their lives. And if there's a disputable area that causes you to sin or pulls you towards that direction, it's probably wise to forego it and realize, you know what, I'm called to be holy and kill sin. This is not helping me, so I will stay away from it. And a guy in my dorm back in college who'd come out of the drug, sex, rock and roll culture, and he heard some of us in the dorm, I was at a Christian college, and he heard some of us playing you know, Christian rock, and he, he was very thrown off by it. it was very, for him, it was very offensive because it brought back all the memories and pulled him back towards that drug, sex, rock and roll culture. And so we realized we shouldn't do this around him. That's just being kind and gracious and wise because we're called to be holy. We're called to yield our rights if necessary, not demand our rights. So true Christians are called to lives sound doctrine, lives of holiness, to kill sin, and to be holy. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to be holy. That's quite the wording. Make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That should be the thing that drives us. Secondly, as you mature, learn to distinguish moral issues from preference issues. That's just Christian maturity. Many of our decisions in the Christian life, maybe most of them, are in the gray zone. In other words, there's not a specific verse that says, thou shalt or thou shalt not. So then what do you do? What do you do when it comes to schooling options, food or beverage options, vaccination options, guns, birth control, any of this stuff? How do you decide? Well, you go back to time-tested principles of finding God's will. Like what? Scripture, what does the Bible say? Seeking wise counsel from those you respect who are more mature than you. Prayer, and if it's really an issue you're struggling with, fasting. Fasting. So many Bible-believing Christians in modern-day America do not fast, and they should. Because Jesus said, when you fast, not if you fast, in adding fasting. And then being gracious and humble with those we disagree with. Because there's no way... On that kind of a long list that I read this morning, we're all going to agree on disputable matters. It's not important we all agree. It is important we get along and have unity and treat each other with respect. Thirdly, lastly, this is going to sound a little funky, but it's very important. The hallmark of Christian maturity is both increasing inflexibility and flexibility. Now, unless you think I'm schizophrenic, I'm not. I don't think. Increasing inflexibility on black and white moral issues and foundational doctrinal issues. When it comes to the sanctity of marriage, man and a woman, when it comes to the issues of abortion or racism or gluttony or lying or stealing, increasing inflexibility to giving on those. That's spiritual maturity. 
or clear doctrinal issues, the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, we are called to be increasingly intolerant towards deviating off those as we age and mature in Christ. That's the increasing inflexibility, but increasing flexibility when it comes to areas of disputable matters. Not that we agree with, you can't agree with everybody, that's not the point, but gracious, not picking a fight like those couple young men I mentioned in my sermon this morning, not pointing the finger and grouching at people and trying to be their referee and playing Holy Spirit in their life and on and on and on. I am called as I mature in Christ to be increasingly inflexible about some things and frankly, People get these categories mixed up all the time. Too many younger believers today get flexible on all the wrong things. I need to be increasingly flexible on the right things. And if I do, then I am remembering the forgotten beatitude. Oh, yes, there is one. Do you know the forgotten beatitude? The forgotten beatitude is this. Blessed are the flexible, for they will not get bent out of shape. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. It's always so relevant. And as we transition to the Lord's Supper and celebrate it and then say the Apostles' Creed, Holy Spirit, pull us together as a church family. Thank you for the unity that is in this body, the 128 years that this church has been around and thrived and for your hand of clear blessing that is on this congregation. In Jesus' good name, amen.